Welcome to the... <laughs> no, 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 I can't do that. Let's try another one. Uh, how about this? <laughs> no, no, that won't work either. Let's try this. get on board with that. Let's roll with it. Welcome to the Begin the Begin podcast. My name is Jeff Hillemeyer, and I'm on a mission to find out what makes people tick. Not just anyone, people who are making a profound impact on the world. I want to dig into their origin story and get to the root of why and how they do what they do. I hope you are as inspired coming out of these conversations as I am. Let's get into it. On this episode, I have the incredible opportunity to talk to the U.S. activism manager at Ben & Jerry's, Jabari Paul. Yes, the world's greatest ice cream company has someone in charge of activism. I've long been a massive fan of Ben & Jerry's, and along with Patagonia, I hold them as the model for building a business as a force for good in this world. We talk about his journey of supporting civil rights and racial justice, his experience working with John Lewis, and how he ended up working for, as he put it, a social justice company that makes ice cream to fuel its efforts. And hey, while I've got you, definitely consider subscribing on whatever platform you're listening on. I have a lot of great guests lined up that, trust me, you won't want to miss. Okay, let's get into it. Okay, this, I don't even know where to start. I am so pumped up about talking to Jabari Paul um, because he works at literally my favorite company. Um, So Jabari, will you introduce yourself? Tell us who you are and what you do. Well, first, thank you for having me on your podcast, Jeff. Uh, I'm very excited to be here. I'm Jabari Paul and I'm the U.S. Activism Manager at Ben & Jerry's. I lead our advocacy work and um, all of our campaign work that we do for the U.S. And of course, I work with a broader team of people, but I lead that work for the U.S. That's amazing. But it's just like, I hope people think about that for a moment. An ice cream company has a head of activism, <laughs> you know? Um, all right, so, so let me ask this first. Do you have a favorite flavor or is that like asking who your favorite child is? No, no, you better have a favorite flavor <laughs> if you work at Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> uh, so I am vegan. So I love that we have non-dairy options and um, my favorite pl- flavor, I don't know. I, I love the non-dairy Cherry Garcia. I, I'm going to have to go with Cherry Garcia. Non-dairy okay. is great. You know, and that's a classic. You can't go wrong with Cherry Garcia. So here's the thing. I, I, we've been at my house, Ben and Jerry's, you know, obsessed forever. Um, our favorite flavor, by the way, I know you have a direct line to um, the decision makers on, on what flavors <laughs> live and die, but the, uh, the s'mores flavor has been discontinued. And, and it was uh, like, it's a- in our flavor graveyard, as we call it, which is actually a literal place in Waterbury, Vermont. There is a flavor graveyard. So. Oh, that's funny. Cause you know what? Um, I'm not kidding you. My wife and I were going to go up to Vermont, um, in March of this year, uh, or last year, rather 2020. <laughs> and of course that, that got canceled, but we were going to do, um, see about doing a tour. I mean, that was one of the reasons we wanted to go. 
and we would actually stop by the graveyard if that was the case. <laughs> you should actually, you should absolutely reschedule, um, you know, knock on wood. I'm, I got a wood desk nearby, so I'm knocking on it. Knock on wood that we're through the woods with, um, with COVID and this pandemic um, sooner rather than later. But you absolutely have to do it. You know, one of the things that I'm most proud of right now with our fat red water barrier is that we actually had the, the privilege in, uh, to collaborate with the late Congressman John Lewis before his passing. Um, as you all know, he's also an author of this graphic no novel trilogy called March. And we were collaborating about how to use the imagery of March to inspire our fans to really exercise their civic duties and get out the vote. And um, there's this very uh, unique exhibit that we have there that takes the caricatures of March and uh, basically use them to encourage people to vote. So you have to go, you have to check it out. It's a wonderful exhibit. You'll love it, your family will love it. Oh, that's amazing. Well, yeah, being from Atlanta, um, we're big John Lewis fans and that's how I came to learn about you. So- Oh, really? <laughs> I. So when, when you guys did the Lifetime of Good Trouble, I think it was called, um, it was a John Lewis, I think it was like an hour, maybe an hour and a half, um, I want to say TV special, maybe it was YouTube or something, but we got it up on the TV and my kids and I and, and my wife, we all sat down and we watched it and I saw you up there and <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, I got to try to talk to this guy. Like, because I, I'm not kidding, Ben and Jerry's to me, um, is such a brave, bold, important company. And, and we'll talk about that. Uh, I'll talk about why I feel that way. I know you feel that way. Um, but seeing you up there, I thought I've got to talk to him. So did you get to spend a lot of time with Congressman Lewis? Well, he actually, one of his last um, official kind of uh, trips that he made was to Vermont. And it was to uh, do a reading of the uh, third book in the March trilogy series. And we reached out to him and we extended an invitation for him to come and speak to our employees. And he was eager to do it. He made ice cream with us. So it was a whole bunch of fun and we had a good time that day. But that's when the wheels started to turn about how we could collaborate. I think what we instantly bonded over was that we realized that as a company and him as an individual, which it feels like he was an institution all by himself, but uh, we had a whole lot of shared values. And so that's where the conversation started at. And, um, you know, he was very involved in the review process for everything that we did. And once his passing happened, this was something that we said to ourselves, and you heard me say this in the video, but it's absolutely true that we must do this. We must continue this. It was something that we started together. It felt right to do. Uh, we knew that this upcoming election would be one of the most consequential election, if not the most consequential election in our lifetime. It was, a, there is, a, a was a lot that was at stake at this election from, you know, LGBTQ rights to uh, racial justice, just so much at stake. And so we knew that we had to carry this forward. And that's why, you know, we, we launched what you had an opportunity to see was you had an opportunity to see the digital version of the exhibit. But it, the, the whole idea, because we started collaborating prior to the pandemic, 
And so it was initially only supposed to be an actual physical exhibit that was going to live at our factory at Waterbury. And it evolved into both a digital exhibit and a physical exhibit. And that's why I say you still have to go and see the actual exhibit that lives at our factory in Waterbury. No doubt. I mean, count on it. <laughs> count on it. <laughs> but, but let, all right. So let's go back then because um, you're not, you're not there at that, uh, at that headquarters. Um, you're in North Carolina. Did you grow up in North Carolina? I did not. And I've, <laughs> I've only been in North Carolina for a very short period of time. So I initially was a Vermont resident for a short period of time. And I worked out of our, our corporate office in South Burlington. But I'm a native of Florida, so I'm a, I'm a mm -hmm. Southerner. I, I grew up all my life in Tallahassee, Florida. I'm a graduate of uh, one of the baddest universities in, in Tallahassee, Florida a &M University. I'm a Rattler. And I, I went on to get my graduate degree at Northwestern University. But I'm, I'm yeah, I'm a proud Floridian. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So one of the things I like to do, Jabari, is talk to people who um, I, I feel have essentially dedicated their lives to helping others. Um, and I like to try to dig into why or how they ended up in that place where, where they feel like they have to make sure that what they're doing is giving back. And, you know, just based on the limited uh, amount that I know about you, that seems like who you are. So without making too much of an assumption, I, it's, it's pretty clear to me, even just on this conversation. So as you think about growing up, did you always have a heart to help others? Did that come from someone in particular? Did something happen that sort of put you on that path? How did we get there? I definitely family and loved ones had a lot to do with it. Um, and, and them being change agents within uh, the community um, I had a whole lot of first in the generation before me. Um, my grandmother was the first black clerical worker at Florida State University in Tallahassee. My grandfather was the very first bread delivery man. I know people may find it hard to imagine that bread used to be delivered to people's doors like milk, but <laughs> my grandfather was the very first uh, black bread delivery man uh, given a route to work. Um, for uh, Mayflower Bread Company in Tallahassee, Florida. Um, so I think that certainly I was inspired by that generation. Uh, my father was not in the first group, but a part of the first wave of black firefighters that came on um, to work. Both of my parents are public uh, servants. My mom taught school for 35 years and my father was a firefighter for uh, 28 years. And so I think that that had a big part to do with it. I also think, you know, I am, <laughs> I am an ordained minister. So I, I think that church um, and, and my religious upbringing had a lot to do uh, with it. And, um, you know, to that end, I, it's hard for me to do anything unless I feel that it is a calling. And I do consider myself very fortunate in that I think that, you know, I get to do work that I feel like it's a calling. And I've always done that type of, been fortunate enough to have an opportunity to do that type of work. Um, you know, I always tell people when they ask me, 
because my background, let me step back for a second and say that before coming to Ben & Jerry's, I'd never worked in a corporate sector a day of my life, right? <laughs> so I come from the nonprofit sector. I come from an organizing background. Um, and I appreciate working for a company that values people with different lived experiences and um, saw a skill set in me that they thought was transferable and could work in a role like uh, an activism manager at Ben & Jerry's. Um, so I come out of an organizing background and most of my focus had been organizing around issues of civil rights and human rights. And that started from a very early age. Uh, I got involved at around about 11 years old in the local chapter of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in uh, Tallahassee, where we saw one of the earliest uh, successful bus boycotts in the South. Montgomery got a lot of attention because that's where Dr. King was, but Dr. King actually trained reverends and leaders all across the uh, South to uh, mobilize bus boycotts. And one of those places was in Tallahassee, Florida, he, uh, in Tallahassee, worked with the Reverend who our bus terminal is named after, named C.K. Steele. And by the time that I came along, um, Reverend Steele had passed away, but one of the people who helped him organize that bus boycott in Tallahassee was a Reverend named Arian Gooden. And Arian Gooden was the president of the SLC when I was uh, a, a child and, um, <laughs> To, to say it exactly as he said it to me at this time, he said, uh, come in, young man, and let me show you how to organize. And uh, he, he pulled me into his wings, and I began working with him. And I later went on to become very involved with the NAACP. I had the privilege of being one of its seven youth board members because the NAACP is unique in reserving some of the seats on its board of directors for young people. So I got some of my training from there. And then I began to uh, find certain jobs that, that, that I found that I could still push for justice in, right? So that, that happened by getting involved with a group called the League of Young Voters Education Fund and working around electoral issues. Um, there was a group started, uh, I don't know how many people remember the organization that once existed and then conservatives attacked it and it went away, unfortunately, called ACORN. Uh, but uh, a lot of the unions and progressive groups realized that one of the things that ACORN had done a very good job at was mobilizing the, uh, the vote in black and brown communities. And so they started a group to replace ACORN called the Florida African American and Caribbean Empowerment Alliance. And it was based out of um, SEIU 1199 headquarters in Miami. And um, I went on to be an organizer with that and helped to work with that. And then I was fortunate to land a role with a um, group called Faith in Florida. And I don't know how many of you all are familiar uh, with the national affiliate of Faith in Florida called Faith in Action. And I worked with them for a number of years. And long story short, uh, eventually found my way to Ben and Jerry's. People ask how I got the job and how I got the job is a boring story. What inspired me is more of an interesting story because truth be told, 
I just saw a, 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 a job posting on LinkedIn. I, I literally applied for it. And I always tell people, when I applied for the position, I say to myself, there's not a chance in hell I'm going to like get this role. And, you know, shocked even myself when they called me back for the final interview and then ultimately offered my job. But the interesting story behind what inspired me was that um, Ben & Jerry's is very unique um, among Unilever companies. I think we're the only brand within the Unilever portfolio that has an independent board of directors. Um, mm. And that was set up in our acquisition agreement uh, when they purchased us, I think in 2000. And basically um, what the board has charge over is the social mission of the company. So basically it protects us and allows us a, a certain autonomy in being outspoken with issues that, uh, that we believe in from a value standpoint. And Jeff Furman, was the chairman of the board when I first started at the company. And he, I'm not, I always botched this quote by him, but basically I was reading an article uh, after I had the first interview and I was like, they're never gonna call me back again. But I, I started to do my research anyway. And I read this article by him and basically he described the company as a social justice company or a social justice organization that sold ice cream to be able to fuel the social justice work. And that was like mind blowing to me, right? And I was like, what? This is a, so a company, a for-profit company speaking this way. And, um, and I was like, okay, I was like, you know, I know I may get the flack about going over to the dark side, but if a company is talking this way, then I can I can work for a company like this, and and then the rest is history. I've been I've been with the company a little for over three years at this point, and it's it's been a good experience. It's um, there's so there's so much interesting things there. Um, it it's astounding to me how he described the company, um, and so. I believe that um, business has maybe the last best chance to really help cause change in, in, in our society. Um, you know, nonprofits are doing their thing, but they're underfunded and underappreciated. Government's not trusted. Um, businesses, though, they get behind causes and try to do good and, and try to be good citizens can move people in, in, I just think in really powerful ways. And so I did this exercise with my team. So, so my company, Dragon Army, we're an, an, a marketing agency. We build websites and mobile apps, um, you know, technology. We get to do really fun, creative, cool things. Yeah. Um, but I took my leadership team at one point and I said, all right, I, wanna, I want you all to write down some companies that you wish we would aspire to be like. Um, and... Um, you know, in most agencies like mine, it would be like the big agencies, you know, it would be like the, the agencies that created the, the great campaigns and whatnot. And the two that got the most um, votes were Ben and Jerry's and Patagonia. And <laughs> I'm wearing Patagonia right now. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and it's, it's interesting to me too, because like before this interview, I just went on. So we're recording a few days after um, the riot um, the riots and the storming um, at the Capitol. And the top post on Ben and Jerry's and Patagonia's Facebook page is all about how wrong that was and how we need to come together. I mean, it was all about that 
you know, incident in our country. And then I went to some other brands that espouse to be good citizens and for purpose. And, you know, they, they weren't talking about that at all. It was, you know, buy our latest thing. And the thing that I always find so brave and exciting about what you all are doing is I can get an email from you that says like, here's the new cookie dough flavors or things you can do with cookie dough. And then two days later, I can get a complete voter registration email that talks about how I can, you know, go where I need to go to vote and how I can register. And, and it's just, I just think that's amazing. And so, yeah, it may have felt like <laughs> I'm going to the dark side of going, but I got to say, like, I think the good that Ben and Jerry's is doing is outstanding. And you must just, you must feel like you're one of, you're at one of a few co- for-profit corporations that could fulfill you. I mean, th- there can't be many, right? Yeah, you know, there, there are some companies that, that do a, a good job at this. You name one of them. I mean, we, we are also inspired by the work of Patagonia. There are a few other companies like Lush Cosmetics that we also are very inspired by. So there are brands out there who do this uh, very well. Um, and I've come to realize that it, it is, a, you know, it is a rarity. You, again, you got the put everything in context because I, I, I hadn't worked in the corporate space before coming to Ben and & Jerry's. And then after arriving to Ben and & Jerry's and kind of, you know, surveying the landscape of other companies, I was like, oh, okay, we are a little bit special. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I, I do very much appreciate uh, being at a company like one I'm at. I, I will say that, you know, so one, you can do both. You can walk and chew gum at the same time. I think that you can you you can um, you know sell your product, but you can also have a very strong social mission, and you can have a strong value set, and you can you can push your values. Uh, the other thing is is that I, I think that the key to success for us is um, really having a people oriented approach, right? So we really put people at the heart of our approach. And look, we're very kind of clear on who we are. (laughs) We're an ice cream company. So um, we, you know, the the positions, the statements that we put out, those are our words, those are are shaped by us, but they're influenced by the people who we place at the center of our work, right? Uh, They're influenced by our NGO partners because those are the people closest to the closest to the ground. And we believe that that's our way of impacting systemic and positive social change in the world, right? Is to be able to look at uh, groups out there who have the subject matter experts, who are the experts on the ground and are closest to communities that align with our values and work with them to help them over those watershed moments um, in campaigns and help them to be able to grow their base. And that is, that doesn't look like transactional relationships. Those are transformative relationships and being intentional about, you know, really um, creating an authentic bond with people. And to, and to kind of go full circle here, uh, you know, with regard to everything that we pulled out, when you have those types of relationships with people and you're in constant contact with people, with everyday people who are on the ground, it helps inform your thinking and and really kind of gives you the right words to say when you have to be outspoken about issues of injustice. So a lot of 
you know, the, the key to what we do is really having a people-oriented approach and, and, and uh, that, you know, keeping, keeping those thoughts and whatever they're lifting up at the forefront of mind before we, before we speak about anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm really curious when, when, when I think about why other brands aren't as bold or willing to chew gum and walk at the same time, right? I think it's scary because they're worried. Like there's no doubt there are people who will not eat your ice cream because of your stances on issues. And there's no doubt that there's people who won't work at Ben and Jerry's because they don't agree with those issues. But I have to believe that, um, you know, other than the, um, the great work and the, the feeling that comes with that and the knowledge that the business stands for something more, I bet it also helps the business far more than it actually hurts the business, right? Like, can you talk about some of the ways that you think the business itself benefits from being so active? Yeah, I mean, I, so it, yes. What we have noticed is that whenever we've taken a, a, a stance on our values, that the kind of reward or the return is much greater than you know any kind of backlash. But that's not why we do it at all. Right, I mean, right. why we do it is is that early on, our co-founders and our co-founders are our North Stars. We still coll- they're not a part of the day-to-day business now, but they still collaborate with us on some of the things and. I appreciate the the kind of trajectory that they set for the 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 company, and um, we early on they kind of established this system of what we call link prosperity, right? And the long and short of it is is that the notion of link prosperity is the belief that your business should add uh, benefit or value to the lives of everyone who it touches, everyone in your supply chain. So everyone from the customers who shop at the retail locations that sell your product, the workers in those retail locations, those who source the ingredients, your vendors, your distributors, your suppliers, that your company should add value to the lives of everyone that it it touches. And so, that's what really kind of is at the heart of drive that drives our social mission as a, as a company and uh, drives what we do. Because, you know, a lot of people say, well, stick to making ice cream or, or what, what does this have to do with making ice cream? It, we do what we do because we believe that, you know, the, that our impact should go beyond that, that, you know, the, again, Every, everyone around the communities where our product is sold that we should be using and leveraging our platform as a business to try to make their lives better. And so when you walk into our corporate headquarters, one of the first things that you'll see on the wall is not only our three-part mission statement, our product, our economic, and our social mission, and we lay those out in a very particular order because all of, whenever you see our mission statement, each part of it is adjacent to the other part, right? Because there's no hierarchy to it. Our social mission as a company is just as important as our product mission and our economic mission and vice versa. And then next to that, you'll see this uh, theory of link prosperity. And so that's a daily reminder to us 
um, you know, during the times when we were walking into the building, but that's a daily reminder of us of uh, why, we, why we should be doing what we're doing to improve the lives of the people who are surrounded by our company and every part of our supply chain. Hmm. Yeah, it's so it's just so purposeful the way it's been put together. And you, yes, you've got the, Ben and Jerry, the the North Star, and that's that's amazing. The way they structured the deal with Unilever um, is also, I mean, I think it's outstanding. Like usually, that's the trade off, right? You're going to sell your company, and with it, sort of the soul of the company, and it just becomes part of a big conglomerate. So, I I that is also very inspiring to me. Um, I got a question for you over the years. I wonder, um, is there a specific activation or cause that you helped or organization, you know, you, you, uh, partnered with that is, you know, either one of your favorites or, or a great story where you feel really good about, um, having helped them. <laughs> You're going to get me into trouble here. <laughs> <laughs> Just one of, I know you've got dozens. <laughs> Well, I, you know, if I, you know, give a can give a shameless plug right now, not for the company, but for uh, the the great organizing that we've been working to support in St. Louis, Missouri. Certainly, those organizers are very awe-inspiring, and the work that they're doing in St. Louis, Missouri, has been very awe-inspiring. I don't know how much you've been following um, following the the situation up there, Jeff, and we see this happening in communities across the country. So. Two years ago, we launched our Justice Remits campaign, and our Justice Remits campaign was uh, broadly in support of, you know, well, the purpose of it was to, you know, fix our broken criminal justice system. And it was broadly in support of the work of Color of Change and their work around prosecutorial reform, as well as Advancement Project National Office. And uh, we work with some of their local affiliates, specifically the affiliates of uh, Advancement Project, and one of their local affiliates was uh, or is a coalition in St. Louis called the Close the Workhouse Coalition. And the workhouse in St. Louis is a jail, uh, the Medium Security um, uh, Institute, and at one point, 90% of detainees there were pretrial detention, just too poor to build themselves out. And we thought that it was wrong to have a system in America where, you know, people can be kept in jail, not based upon guilt or innocence, but based upon whether or not they could afford to build themselves out or not. We thought that that was wrong and still do. And so... Uh, this coalition, the coalition is made up by three local organizations on the ground, um, Action St. Louis, uh, the Bell Project, which is a national organization, but they have a local uh, affiliate there, and Art City Defenders. And they've been working to pressure the Board of Aldermen to close the Medium Security Institute. It has a horrendous um, reputation because of its inhumane conditions. There's another facility there. For one, they shouldn't be holding so many people uh, on pretrial detention anyway, but um, there is, uh, you know, certainly enough to house people in one facility and shut down this facility. Like I said, this just very horrendous in terms of its conditions. It um, used to cost, or it still does, um, cost $16 million to operate annually the reason that I said it, uh, it used to is because they did slash the budget, but it uh, has been in previous years $16 million to keep that facility open. And uh, this coalition has been working to get the city uh, to divest 
from the prison industrial complex and take those funds and invest into programs that uh, divert people from going into the system in the first place. So put this into community programming that will help keep people out of jails and prisons. And um, they were successful. You know, we, we supported their work for two years uh, in, in terms of helping our whole kind of model is how do we help to drive our consumers up a ladder of engagement so that they can work in support of these campaigns. So we help to increase awareness, uh, help work with organizations to help them increase awareness, um, to take actions. And ultimately we wanna, you know, conversion, you know, have them be active and become a part of the groups that we work to support. And they were successful and getting the uh, Board of Alders in St. Louis to pass a resolution this past summer to close that workhouse. Mm. Unfortunately, and this is just indicative of the times that we are, where people refuse to accept the votes or the wills of you know, the people, but now the mayor, um, uh, Lydia Cruson, is walking back her decision and so we've remained um, focused and we are remaining focused with them and continuing to put pressure on the local uh, decision makers to make sure that that workhouse indeed close and that they honor the legislation that they pass to close the workhouse. And the only reason I lift them up is because it is so awe-inspiring to see these young people just, you know, against all odds, just continue to push and push and push and, you know, try to do what is good for their community, despite, you know, the lies that is peddled by politicians to be persistent in pushing this issue. So they've been inspiring, but so many, you know, so many I can name so many examples of, of, of activists on the ground who are inspiring, but I'm certainly inspired by young people who are on the front lines. You know, yeah. I think that that's what encourages me more than anything to see that up and coming generation of, of activists. And to also remember, you know, as we approach this King holiday that, um, you know, when we look back in retrospect, <laughs> We think about, uh, certainly when you're young, we think about movement leaders of the civil rights era as if they were older people, but these were young people. And, and so that I think that that's the reason why I'm so encouraged by all of the young activists, a part of Black Lives Matter and the movement for Black Lives and the climate justice movement and the, you know, the Me Too movement. I'm, a, I'm inspired by all of the young people who are saying that, no, we won't sit back, we won't stand down. We are going to continue to kind of carry this mantle forward and fight what is, uh, for what is just and humane for all of the citizenry. And, and that, that circles back to the beginning of our conversation. Um, I, I read John Meacham's book on John Lewis as soon as it came out last year. And um, it's just staggering how young John Lewis was when he was 
in the middle of it. I mean, we're talking 19 years old, 20 years old, out in front. Um, and so, yeah, that that movement of young people um, is what it takes. Um, and I think that is inspiring. Let me ask you a question. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know if you've read um, America in the King Years by Taylor Branch. No, um, I haven't. It's epic. I mean, it, it's it's three volumes each, about a thousand pages, um, and it goes from like I don't know fifty six to sixty eight, I think, and and it's just very comprehensive. It's fantastic. I had a chance to have the author Taylor Branch, who won a Pulitzer Prize for it, on the podcast. Um, and one of the things that occurs to me, and my question is going to be about racial justice as it applies to um, sort of the awakening that happened in twenty twenty, um, that when you read about Dr. King and John Lewis and, you know, it was almost like there had to be, you know, just awful things that were publicized to get the attention um, of the broader country and certainly of the electorate. Um, and unfortunately, right. But it was like, they go through periods where there wasn't a huge sit-in or, or wasn't something terrible. And, you know, it would sort of wane, right? The, the momentum would wane. So my question for you is, one of my fears is that in this past year, when we saw, you know, starting with George Floyd, just so many horrific scenes and most of America because of the pandemic couldn't escape it, right? And had to sit with it and had to process it. And, and then you had this, you know, what I'll call it a bit of an awakening um, to systemic racism and, and the problems that surround people of color in this country. Do you, I know you're a hopeful, positive person. I get that so far from our conversation. Do you have a good sense that, you know, the, the tide has risen, that there's going to be continued activism on this, or, or do you think that, you know, it's going to start to wane again until the next thing happens? I think both. I think that we're, you know, there certainly was a seismic shift after the George Floyd incident. I mean, not only did people have to sit with it in terms of um, not being able to go out as much during the pandemic, but um, the other Tallahassean that is a mentor of mine and has long been a mentor of mine is um, Benjamin Crump, attorney Crump, who's of course the attorney that represented the family of George Floyd. And um, in a conversation not too long ago with him, you know, and he's certainly done this on, on, on during media interviews too, but spoke about how people had to sit and watch the seven minutes as this man struggled for his life. And it hits you in a different way when you actually watch someone's death and it's a slow death, right? Like someone is like this man who clearly posed no harm laying on the ground and you're on his neck and you hear him cry out and the clock is ticking and you hear him call on his mom and beg for mercy and beg for help. I think that that struck America in a different way because you know, like you, you hear about these shootings in like Maude Aubrey and everything and, don't, and, and you see that, but it's kind of like the clip of that is bang, bang, boom, 
and then it's over, right? Like, and, and, and I think it's easy to kind of file, unfortunately, I think we've become so immune to images like that. And that's a, that's a sad statement, but you know, it's easy to kind of file something that happens rapidly away, kind of easy. But the George Floyd video, I think that what was so powerful and moving about it, and not in good way, is, is that you, you, you had to sit there and watch this clip of this man struggling for his life. So I, so I think that there is a shift that has taken place. And there is, you know, the tide is at a new level. But I also believe, um, you know, in the, just like in the nature of physics that, you know, everything eventually subsides. And I think that it is up to us to make sure that, you know, we don't slip back to the place where we were before the George Floyd incident happened. So yes, you know, the, the consciousness of white America has been a, a, awakened, awoken in a different way. Um, I think that we must be persistent in uplifting this narrative of injustice. Like take, for instance, what we saw this past week at the Capitol, right? And I think that we could do a split screen in our mind because, you know, what was it? The day before you had the announcement that there were no charges in the, Blake, uh, the Jacob Blake shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin of this young man with his back turned right, this unarmed young man with his back turned, shot in the back with officers, by officers. But yet this, this, this event at the Capitol happened and, you know, this militia of rioters and of domestic terrorists, let's call it for what it is, right? This, this, this militia, and you see the law enforcement there handled them with kid gloves, right? Just, just, in, just treat them, actually assisting them, <laughs> you know, uh, when they got pepper sprayed in their eyes. And, you know, so showing compassion that's not afforded to everyone in our society. And so we must be persistent in saying that something is wrong with this picture, that there uh, there's a discrepancy here, that there is uh, a double standard here and that this double standard is wrong. I think that it is, it is up to all of us to keep calling that out. And that's the only way that we, that progress won't totally subside in the aftermath of the George Floyd incident. Mm -hmm. Thank you for saying that. Um, and, and I'm encouraged because I know your company has been fighting that fight for quite some time and will continue to do so and keep that persistent, you know, foot down on, on trying to, um, you know, break down racial injustice and, and systemic racism. So thank you for that. Um, let's do some, a little bit lighter topic. <laughs> Um, that's what we do. We do a little bit of ice cream, a little bit of Cherry Garcia, a little bit of heavy. You know? I love it. I love it. Um, perfect. <laughs> so yeah, so on the ice cream side of things, I always like to ask people toward the end, 
what some of their favorite books are of all time that they would recommend. This could be fiction. This could be, you know, serious. It could be anything in between. It could be something you read yesterday, something you read when you were 14. Just love to hear some of your favorite books. So, you know, this is a nod to all of the, the uh, and I'm going to keep it light here, but I got to give a shout out, right? So this is a nod to the extraordinary organizing and activism of all of the Black women across uh, the country who just, you know, helped to save democracy. You know, uh, Latasha Brown, Dewana Thompson, you know, so many others. I'm, I'm, I, I don't want to call out too many names. I don't want to get in trouble, but especially in Georgia. I know you're in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And, you know, look, shout out to all, first, shout out to all of the organizers in, in Georgia that put it down and helped to save democracy because that, and that's not even a partisan statement. That's just, that's what you did by turning out to vote. You helped to save democracy. And so, you know, lately I've been reading, I've been rereading people like Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou and from my home state, Zora Neale Hurston, because, you know, I've been so motivated and inspired by the leadership of Black women who, you know, again, talking real, who I think have always faced a double barrier, not only, you know, as, as uh, being women of color, uh, but being women <laughs> and, being, and being people of color. And I think that, um, you know, time and time again, even before now, they have showed up and they showed out and they have, you know, they have stepped up even in um, the face of peril to their, their personal selves and in um, the face of all sorts of barriers. So I've gone back to, uh, you know, to, to books written by Maya Angelou and Toni Morrison and Zora Neale Hurston, um, because you know it's it's good to to remember the leadership of all of our forebears too, yeah. who really carried this mantle of leadership uh, even before us, and they too are a reminder why we cannot let the the hands of the clock turn back. I love that. That's a, that's a great way to end our conversation. I, I, that's very inspiring. Um, I got to say, Jabari, um, I, I had high expectations for this conversation. <laughs> As I said, I, I knew I'd- I hope I didn't more disappoint. <laughs> no, it, it exceeded expectations, but I, I hope I didn't fanboy out too much. But I, I honestly like um, the work you all are doing. I mean, the fact that you exist at an ice cream company, it's, I mean, it's inspiring because there's companies that, you know, <laughs> there's companies where their product actually does connect a little bit more logically that could maybe be inspired by you all. So I just can't thank you enough for the work that you're doing. Um, and hopefully people hear this and they want to get involved and want to support. Um, at the very least, they should subscribe to the email newsletter you guys send out. It's so informative, but there's just so much great content um, on the website. You guys are involved in so many things. So thank you so much for taking the time, but really for all the great work you do. Thank, thank you too. And I must give a, I, I sincerely mean that from the depths of my heart, because I think that we need more platforms like this and more people like you to uplift positive messages like this. And certainly, you know, with, yeah, there's a lot of great work you're, you're doing too, uh, with the A pledge and everything else. So thank you too, for your leadership, Jim. No, oh, thank you, Jabari. I appreciate that. We'll see you soon. Wow, you made it to the end of the podcast. I didn't think people did that anymore. Well, since I still have you, I'd love for you to do two things. 
First, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. That way you'll be alerted as soon as I post my next one. And second, I'd love for you to subscribe to my email newsletter. I send out an email every week or two, and it's really where I share my more personal thoughts and ideas. Plus, I give stuff away sometimes. You can find the sign up at my blog, jeffhillemeyer.com, and I really do appreciate you listening. <laughs>